1: Yes, hello everyone, and welcome to None But The Brave, a part of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean, and this is the season premiere of our third season, Hard to Believe. What do you think?
0: That's true. Who never, Whoever thought that uh, two years ago, we'd still be talking about this guy like we do?
1: <laughs> well, I just can't believe people are still listening.
0: Oh, th- there is that as well. That's actually the bigger, the bigger mystery.
1: They're listening, I think, because we have been very fortunate to get some really great guests on the show. The last season ended with the guys from Backstreets, and tonight we have a really, really big guest, and we're very excited about it.
0: Oh, very excited. This is our uh, our first our first East Reader.
1: Yes, and maybe we'll get the big guy, too. We'll see.
0: <laughs> if dreams came true, wouldn't, wouldn't that, that be that nice? <laughs> yes.
1: So I think let's get right to it tonight. What do you think? Let's stop the lang and get to it. All right. So tonight we have a guest who absolutely le- needs no introduction to our audience. But what the hell, Flynn, will introduce him anyway.
0: <laughs> our guest tonight
1: has been the
0: consigliere to two of
1: the most famous
0: bosses that come out of New Jersey. He's a musician. He's a singer, songwriter, arranger, producer, actor, TV writer, TV producer, educator with teachrock.org and now he's an author with his newly released autobiography unrequited infatuations steven van zandt welcome to the podcast how we doing boys
1: we're doing really well that you're here thank you so much
0: very excited hey all right so we we have read your book and it really is a it's an excellent memoir of sex drugs rock and roll i mean you have lived an amazing life and it comes across in your book. I mean, I hear your voice as as I'm reading. Was that the intention?
2: Yeah, that's always the first uh, sort of challenge, Um, you know, uh, and and I decided, you know, the way to do it was was to picture doing the audio book, you know, uh, which I knew I would eventually be doing. Uh, and kind of write it that way, you know. So, so I, um, I told the editor and the publisher, I said, look, uh, this is going to not be gr- grammatically correct. Okay, you're going <laughs> to see a lot of weird sort of fragmented sentences, uh, et cetera. But I said, you know, I'm doing that intentionally and, and I wanted to read the way I talk, you know. Uh, so they, they went along with that, uh, you know, luckily for me. And that's why you know it does sound it does sound like me because it's me. You
1: know? <laughs> really, some of these books, you wonder, is the person going to go there? Especially in these rock and roll autobiographies. And your book, I tremendously enjoyed it. I know Flynn tremendously enjoyed it. You really don't hold back. Did you feel at any point like, "Ooh, if I say something like this, someone's going to be upset"? Obviously, you you've worked with some really big people. Well. I left out most of those things. Really? <laughs> <laughs> wow! <I> mean,
2: <laughs> you're getting the things that you know. I thought were you know relatively, uh, relatively civilized. Um, you know, I, I look, it, look, it's the truth. I, I am. I, I try to be mostly, uh, you know, positive. I, I, I literally, I, I left out a lot of the, the negative stuff. You know, you run into a lot of assholes in, in 40 years, you know. Especially and, in your business. And, and, yeah. And and without without having a manager, uh, there's no buffer. You know what I mean? So you're, you're literally, you know, constantly, uh, you know, having contact with less than uh, savory people. And, um, you know, and I don't cause trouble for anybody. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't look for trouble. I don't start trouble ever. Uh but there are people who want to start trouble with you, you know, uh, just the way human nature is for some people, whether, you know, for whatever reason, you know, uh, they want to fuck with you. And, uh, you know, so occasionally uh, you got to you got to deal with it, you know, and I, I, I literally, um, I don't know, there's less, less than half a dozen examples of it, I think, in the book. And uh, believe me, that's out of, you know. Fifty or sixty that there could have been, <laughs> so you know, and and I left out some of the worst ones, you know. Uh, you know I mean, I, you know, I I wanted it, I had I had I had bigger things on my mind than uh, you know that kind of you know that kind of gossipy type stuff. You know, I didn't want to do much of it, and and, um, and uh, my own narrative is the least interesting part of the book for me. You know, I, I wanted it to be, I wanted to share what I've learned, at, you know. Um, you know, share a little bit of the you know the, you know, the, the multiple crafts that I've been involved in, and uh, you know what I mean, and, and kind of pass along what I've seen, what I've done. So it's not about me so much as much as where I've been and what I've done and what I've seen, and you know, hoping that it would leave behind something that's more useful. Uh, I didn't want it to be just about a you know a rock and roll guy or limited to a rock and roll audience, or even a music audience, you know, I wanted right. to read like a, like a detective novel, you know, where you don't know what's coming next, because I don't know, I didn't know what was coming next, you know, yeah, what I you mean, and, you know, it starts off as a music book, obviously, because <laughs> that's where I start, you know, but then it kind of just goes into these other places that are, it's become, you know, I wanted to, you know, to, to reveal, you know, reflect the more universal quest for one's identity, you know, and, and one's purpose in life. You know, I think that's something that everybody goes through. And I wanted to pass that along, you know.
1: Let's go back to the beginning, because in the book, you write so passionately about the artists that had an impact on you, especially the Beatles. And then by the end of the book, you brought a full circle. Fifty years later, Paul McCartney wants to play with your band on your stage. What do you think your 15 year old self would have thought if he could hear that story? Uh, there's no, no, no chance
2: uh, <laughs> that uh, he would have had that kind of imagination. Um, the whole thing was a fantasy. I mean, the entire, the, the Beatles' existence was a fantasy, you know, uh, for those of us who really were not fitting in to uh, the society we were presented with, you know. Um, and keep in mind, all right, before the Beatles, there was no uh, sort of teenage industry, you know? Uh, I mean, teenagers themselves were only, were only 10 years old, you know, teenagers were invented in the fifties, as I, I talk about in, in the book, mm-hmm. That whole, the, you know, I, I set up the, I set up the, you know, the Beatles entrance by talking about how, how the whole thing really started in the fifties with leisure time after world war two and, and all that, you know, and how all of a sudden we were the richest country in the world and, and, you know, that awkward couple of years between adolescence and adulthood uh, suddenly became uh, three, four, five years and became this thing called the teenager. Didn't exist before the 50s. And, and, um, and so suddenly there, were, there was this huge teenage marketplace, you know, for, for which people, of course, and, and came up with all kinds of things to supply them because we are the, the kings of capitalism, after all.
1: <laughs> yes. So.
2: So they come with you know hula hoops and, and yo-yos and, and you know all those and, uh, all those fun fads, including this thing called rock and roll, you know. But it was kind of a novelty acts and kind of these bizarre pioneers. You know, they were all they were all weird and and weirdly entertaining and and weirdly novelty acts really. Um, and and then suddenly, all of the things we thought were novelty acts turned out to be the naissance of a Renaissance, you, you know, suddenly, they're, they're the pioneers of a, of a new art form. And so the, the entire 50s had to be looked at an entirely different way, after the Beatles and the, and, and the rest of the British invasion hit and credited them, you know, people we never heard of, you know, my generation, right. I never heard of very, never heard of them, never heard of Bo Diddley, never heard of Little Richard, I never heard of Muddy Waters. Why would I? How would I? How would I know them? You know, so boom, you know, and suddenly, so not only are they turning us on to our own black roots of of, of popular music and rock and roll, but, but they're suddenly, uh, they're, they, they're, they're a, they're a teenage industry. And, and so every band that has come after them owes them that gratitude because there, there was no such thing. There was no such thing as bands,
0: first of all. Right. Or you had solo you know, artists all the time
2: yeah solo acts and doo-wop, you know duo groups you know and so they so you know but they introduced the idea of young people actually uh, being in business you know they were you know however 19 20 21 years old you know this was a, a whole new weird thing man that was a miracle uh, for those of us again who who were not really you know i i i, I didn't want to go to college i didn't want to work you know work a normal job. I didn't want to go in the military. I was too small for sports. What am I going to do? You know, and suddenly, boom, here's this new world. And boy, was that exciting. I mean, it was like, uh, literally a lifeline, you know, Uh, you know, you're drowning, you know, in this in this weird world, you know, you know, you really can't figure out where your place is. And suddenly, you know, they they threw that lifeline. And as I say, the Rolling Stones really completed it because um, the Beatles were just, were just way too good uh, to, to imagine doing it. I mean, when, by the time we saw them, they were halfway through the career and they were extremely sophisticated. I mean, you know, the harmony was perfect and, and the hair was perfect and they were perfect, you know? And, um, and the Stones came four months later and, and made it look easier than it was. So the way I put it is, uh, the Beatles revealed a new world and the Stones invited us in
0: okay that's an interesting way to put it put it where does not not to go back too much, but where does elvis fit in in the in like in the fifties where elvis presley yeah where does yes. he fit in in your in your narrative there well, where, uh,
2: extremely ex- extremely important um, um arguably uh the most important guy in terms of the uh popularization of this new uh um you know, genre called rock and roll. Uh, in my mind, Little Richard invented it. Uh, Chuck Berry was indisputably the king of rock and roll for uh, at least at least three reasons. Uh, he brought the lyrics, uh, he brought the guitar, and uh, and and the performance. His performances were uh, extremely entertaining. So he made he made. Uh, uh, I mean, his lyrics not only not only were the, the greatest lyrics that. Everybody uh, learned from and and copied, uh, uh, but also uh, uh, he institutionalized this new thing called teenagers. You know, he he uh, actually you know um, put them in the songs. You know, this this you know um, sweet sweet little sixteen, and you know little queenie, yeah, drop a little queenie, drop a diamond, a juke by. You know, you know, you know. He's talking about you know that lifestyle that you know. Was fringy, you know, at best, and kind of just starting, you know, very, very nascent, you know, you know, and he was just institutionalizing it, man, you know, and the kids go after school and they go to the malt shop and they put the money in the jukebox and they start dancing, and you know, man, it sounded like fun, you know, so he, so you know, Chuck Berry, you know, was the most important, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you really have, you'd have to say, uh, you know, Little Richard being the archetype and the one who embodied the entire. Sensibility of rock and roll, this is his his androgyny, his 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 liberation, uh, you know, his, his his you know, he opened his mouth and out came liberation, okay, and that's what the essence of rock and roll is. Chuck Berry brought the details, and and uh, but uh, they both had one problem, uh, they were black, you see, so uh, that was a little, very limiting in those days. Um, they had black radio and they had white radio, you know, and eventually now Alan Freed and a couple of other brave DJs. Would start playing that black black music for white kids, which was uh, not radical, a good, not a good thing to do, and and they eventually crucified Alan Freed for doing it, but but um, but it really started. It was the the game changer because um, then they started to cross over, and then suddenly uh, Chuck Berry was having hits on the white radio as well. Uh, but any, but but Elvis Presley. Um, who is coming from mostly that black music, but also his first single really defines what rock and roll would be. You know, one side is, is black blues and the other side is, is hillbilly country, you know, uh, the guitars. And, and that combination of hillbilly, you know, and, you know, and blues, and that white and black thing was, was really embodied in, in Elvis Presley. So uh, he would, he would, um, um, you know, he didn't have the first hit. The first hit was Bill Haley and the Comets, Rock Around the Clock, which, which was the very first number one rock and roll song because it was a theme song to the movie Blackboard Jungle. Uh, but Elvis um, really, uh, you know, Bill Haley was a little bit, you know, <laughs> he looked like your country uncle from, you know, <laughs> from, <laughs> from Mississippi. Uh, but, but, you know, but Elvis, you know, Elvis had that whole thing, the charisma and the, you know, the good looking, the same androgyny that little Richard had, by the way, but but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know a little, a little less obvious. <laughs> but a little, a, little, a little bit less makeup. Uh, uh you know, and so so Elvis, you know, you know, that his appearance on at Sullivan uh I don't know, 1956, I guess it was. I forget now, 55, 56, um, you know, we really blew the doors open and uh and so so he he, he was the most important cat in terms of uh publicizing. And popularizing this new uh, this new genre
0: of rock and roll. And then and then the bands came in and that just blew it all, blew the door open for for everybody.
2: Well, that's a, yeah, that's a whole nother yeah, a whole nother chapter because because all of those pioneers, keep in mind, they were all gone by the end of the 50s, early 60s, you know. Uh, the rock rock history went into this, it's it's kind of known as a fallow period, you know, kind of a an in-between period. Um, The truth of the matter is a lot of good records were were, were coming out in that, you know, in that period, Uh, you know, uh, but, but, but in between the pioneers and the British invasion, there was, you know, those couple of years where, um, you know, historians refer to it as a sort of, you know, slow period because all of the pioneers were gone at once, it was amazing. Elvis is in jail. Elvis is in the army. Uh, Chuck Berry's in jail. Bo Diddley became a sheriff. Uh, Little Richard became a minister. Buddy <laughs> Holly died in a car crash, uh, plane crash. Uh, Eddie Cochran in a, in a car crash. You know, uh, literally all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're all gone, you know. And what people thought, that's the end of rock and roll. Honest to God, that was the end, you know. Uh, you know, now, you know, like I said, a couple. Couple of people who were still making great records, you know, the Beach Boys, you know, and then Four Seasons and Gary U.S. Bonds and Dion, you know, you know, there were still, you know, girl groups. You know, Motown got started in those fallow years, supposedly. So, you know, there was a lot of action, but it wasn't sort of, uh, you know, uh, didn't seem to be socially relevant anymore, you know, or, or you know, something, something like that. And uh, and until uh, the the Beatles, then they introduced this concept of, of being in a band. And that's when I and that's when I started tuning in. And and a lot of people like me, I wasn't interested in show business, really. And, you know, in in the entertainment business. But being in a band was appealing. You know, that's something I wanted. I wanted very much to uh, I I could really relate to the friendship
1: part of it. You know, the family part of it. Uh, That's what that's what attracted me. So let's pick up there, because after the British invasion, as you just said, teenagers started to take up playing music they got into bands and and areas created music scenes and one of those scenes of course was down on the jersey shore where you found yourself and where several other people who went on to prominence found themselves what was it like being there in the in the mid to late 60s as that scene was really going well we were the luckiest
2: generation uh, by far uh, you know and i i actually feel a little guilty about it how how, how lucky we were because uh um, you know, I don't know why our generation just had all the fun and uh, uh, we had uh, a number of places to play as teenagers, you know, we're still in high school and I mean, you know, beach clubs and high school dances and VFW halls and Latin Vu, you know, nightclubs built for teenagers. I mean, whoever heard of that before or since, you know yeah you know, it was just an incredible time so um it, uh, you know i don't know if you'd call it a scene exactly but it was a uh, you know it was just a normal part it became a normal part of your social life if you weren't playing that night you went out you went out to see a band i mean that that was it really i mean you know other than going to see a movie occasionally that's all you did you know so so um you know, it became a a, a, a normal thing to uh, uh, to see bands, uh, and you know, you know, there was about a dozen in our area. You know, uh, you know, and uh, you know, we all got to be friends, and and, uh, and 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 that's how it all started. You know, we were just we just we were, we were just uh, there at the right time. You know, really, it was the right time. I mean, before the Beatles, uh, before the British Invasion, if you went to your high school dance, it would be an instrumental band. You know, there was no such thing as as that people, you know, singing and playing and eventually writing their own songs. I mean, that was just a completely foreign thing, uh, you know, uh, no pun intended. But anyway, uh, so so yeah, so we were we were we were just lucky, uh, lucky. We, you know, there were no like I like I say, there there, there was no bands in America. February eighth, nineteen sixty four, uh, the Beatles played a variety show called Ed Sullivan February 9th. February 10th, everybody <laughs> had a band in their garage. That's everybody funny. had a band in their garage on February 10th. Uh, and only about a dozen got out into the, into the world a little bit. The rest uh, mercifully stayed in their garage, but, uh, <laughs> you,
0: know, <laughs> you know, so, you know, we, we, we just were of the lucky ones, you know. Um, so when did you first go to Asbury Park then? Uh,
2: the only time I visited Asbury Park was for a band, a battle of the bands, which, uh, was it the Howard Johnsons which is now where we're uh, um, uh, Tim McClune, Tim McClune, Tim McClune's McClung. place you know uh, I, I, I don't know how how we rebuilt it but there was to be like a roof there used to be a rooftop where the, where they had a, uh, like a shell where bands played and um, yeah we uh, the only the only time i ever went to asbury park in, in my in those you know early days um until until um, late 60s, um, you know, and, and keep in mind, a, a lot happened in a short time in those days. T- time was very, very different than now. You know, a lot would happen in, in, in months, you know, uh, as opposed to now where five years goes by and nothing happens. You know, uh, you would have an entirely new music trend coming at you at least every year you know right. and i go through it in the book you know uh year by year but anyway um that was the only time i visited adway park until bruce mentioned uh, this upstage club um which would have been uh, i'm not really great with these with with time
1: it all blends together understandably
0: 60 days 60, 69 yeah, yeah. i think right yeah yeah
1: um yeah, because, uh, yeah, somewhere in there,
2: you know. So that was the only, that was, that was, you know, that was a bit of a trip, you know. It's about a half hour south, so, so <laughs> it was not exactly your neighborhood. Uh, and then at that point, um, you know, right around then, uh, Asbury, they, they, they ended up opening a Hullabaloo franchise, uh, which, uh, now that I think about it, uh, is really years after the TV show. Kind of interesting. I, I, I That just occurred to me just right now. Because the, the, the Hullabaloo show and Shindig, two of the great rock and roll TV shows we had on every week. You know, we must have had eight. I mean, believe it or not, like eight rock and roll TV shows on every week. You know? And people wonder why you get nostalgic. Um, but Shindig and Hullabaloo, which I would have said lasted for years, if If I was just being asked that, you know, uh, in my mind, it seemed to last five, six years. Actually, they both were about a year and a half. Um, so they were I think they were both gone by sixty six. And here we are playing this Hullabaloo club, you know, later than that, like 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 two, three, four years later than that. So that's kind of interesting. it just occurred to me. But uh, the Hullabaloo franchise ended up creating a circuit officially. Uh, hi, baby. <laughs> my doggy. My that Edie? doggy just, That's Edie. That's um, uh, You know, so there, there was a circuit. You know, there was a hullabaloo in, in Freehold. There was a hullabaloo in Asbury, and a hullabaloo in Middletown, in my town. Um, and that sort of created a, a, a triangle. And if you counted the beach clubs on the coast, it became like a, a bit of a parallelogram, right? you know, <laughs> or square, you know. Uh, and that became and that became the sort of our circuit more or less uh, but at that at, at that point um uh, uh, and, and the hello blue club you know went right into the 70s uh because we were we, we became we, we became the opening act for all of the bands coming
0: through you know we we opened for who, who i don't who, know sorry to interrupt but who is we when you when you say we were the opening act
2: oh, oh so by then yeah by then uh we ended up um I, I guess at that point, you know, we, we had a different, you know, we had a different band every every couple of months. And uh, it probably was Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom, I think. Uh, or, Greatest or band one. name ever. <laughs> so we were opening for like, you know, Humble Pie and Black Sabbath and uh, and, and Jake Giles and, uh, you know, uh, Big Brother, you know. Um, so, you know. Uh, but that, you know, but it's just interesting now that I think about it, because it's years after the, the show went off the air. So I don't
1: know. Whatever. You have some really interesting observations in the book around this time. You're in bands, Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom. I believe Child was another one. Uh, well, that, that was one of Bruce's. That was with Bruce. OK, yeah. uh, so you were in Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom. But there's a point where you guys are together and you recount that you say to Bruce... You're going to be the leader. You're going to be the singer, and you're going to be the main writer, and you basically make him the front man. Yeah, that was probably the very last thing we did, um,
2: at least in my memory. So you, 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 uh, Bruce fanatics out there, who, you know, who know every single hour, uh, uh, you know, you may, you, you may uh, have have more knowledge about this than me, but I think that was the last thing we did. Uh, we tried a lot of different styles, a lot of different things and then, and then the very, very last thing was kind of like a what I what I've just did in the least previous three years, which was uh, horns and and girl singers, which was the final trend of the 60s. you know the, the southern uh, soul meets rock, meets blues, meets gospel uh, trend of, of, of is, is the final yearly trend of the 60s as I, as I go through all of the trends. Um, that's the one that um, really, um, it's hard to say where it started, but I, I, I attribute it to Delaney and Bonnie uh, being the, the, the source of it and uh, would extend it all the way to Mad Dogs and Englishmen with, with uh, Leon Russell and, and Joe Conker. And that, that was the final evolution of the rock uh, era. Uh, you know that 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 particular uh, Renaissance era, uh, and and that's the last thing we tried. We only did a couple gigs that I can remember. This is Doctor uh, Zoom,
0: or no, no, it's, the this Bruce Springsteen, Spring- Bruce Springsteen band. Okay, yeah, okay. And you you were yeah. actually you were actually doing a lot of. You did a bunch of shows in Richmond, of all places. Yeah, and and that seems to be where that that chapter kind of ends. I mean, after that, it seems like Bruce. He said, "You know what? I'm going to be a singer songwriter. I'm going. I'm going the folksy route here."
2: Well, yeah, he didn't exactly say it, you know, um, but he figured that out. It, you know, he took a he took a few months to think about it, and then and then, and then just strategized that. Uh, but yes, it did end in Richmond because I remember uh, our, our drummer uh, Vinnie uh, uh, Lopez punching our trumpet player <laughs> in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Like the hit, to punch. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't hit him in the shoulder or the stomach, you know, had to hit him in the mouth. Uh, and that was, that was the end. And I stayed in Richmond, uh, at that point. And, you know, me and Johnny started Southside Johnny and the kid, uh, like a, a country blues duo, you know, that's kind of how I thought I remember it. Cause I remember being in Richmond when Bruce finally did call and say, you know, I got signed. Uh, so, uh, so yeah we we were, we were down there, me him, Gary talent was down there, Davy Sanchez was down there, and they drop in and be part of our thing you know uh once in a while so so uh yeah, and, and, you know and then once Bruce got signed, everybody came back up to see what that was all about
0: and then you you went to the studio for the for those sessions, and it did you didn't last very long there. <laughs> One session
2: exactly. Uh, yeah, they just were. They were. They were. not They're probably. Uh, I'm guessing now, but uh, I don't think they were thrilled that he was signed as a folk singer, and suddenly he's got this band. You know, because it's really a pain in the ass economically, and um, nothing better for a manager or a record company than a folk singer. You know. Uh, you know, they're the cheapest thing you can have, <laughs> one guy, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, and, it, and and well, that era it was still it was still strong. That the, the singer songwriter era was still very strong at that point, um, and that was you know the the, the beginning of the fragmentation of the seventies. One of those fragments, very strong fragment, was a singer songwriter, and. Uh, so, you know, they were hoping he would be, you know, the new whatever. Of course, the new Bob Dylan was, was the phrase. Right. But, you know, the new Jackson Brown, for that matter, the new Gordon Lightfoot, you know, the new, uh, you know, James Taylor, uh, the new uh, Carol King or whatever. You know? uh, anyway, <laughs> right. Um, you know, and, and uh, so he I think he probably disappointed them very much by uh, saying, oh, by the way, <laughs> I'm a really a rock and roll guy, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, so I, you know, so they, they, I, I, I did one or two takes, on, uh, for you, uh, I had a bottleneck part, uh, you know, I, I practiced, you know, and it was my, one of my first times in a studio ever, um, um, and, and, and you know, so I'm sure I was a little nervous, uh, but, uh, you know, they tolerated like two takes and they were like,
1: no thanks, you know, <laughs> see ya. I, know? I think your book is, that's the first time that's been revealed, right? I don't think anyone ever knew you were in the studio for greetings. I don't know, yeah. I'm not sure what's been revealed and what hasn't, you know, through the years. You know, I don't really
2: follow the uh, the details.
0: But, yeah. but then after you left that studio, you, you left music.
2: Yeah, that was, uh, for me, um I honestly felt like we'd missed the boat and it was over. You know, the, the 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 Renaissance was over, and I was right about that. Um but you know, I just felt, you know, we just missed the boat. So I just quit and um worked for two years, cause worked construction for two years, and uh, you know, uh fate as fate would have it, <laughs> uh, you know, broke my finger playing football, still bent. And uh to exercise my finger, I took a gig with a bar a band playing piano. Yeah,
0: you know?
1: oh, okay. You know, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't really play piano,
2: but I could play chords. You know, and that band, as fate would have it, you know, <laughs> a lot of fate here. Coming, oh, a lot of fate. Believe me, uh, you know, it makes you wonder. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, that band ended up being the turning into the backup band for the Dovells. And suddenly, I was on that what they call the oldie circuit, and um, and completed my education really uh, in the music world. You know, that was a big, big, uh, a big year for me in terms of my education. You know, meeting all of those pioneers uh, and um, listening to them every night, and even though they were all in a terrible mood, you know, you know except Little Richard, who was always in a good mood. But, uh, but most of them were just, just they hated being called oldies. They hated being on the oldie circuit. They hated the fact that the British invasion put them all out of work, you know? And it was ironic, you know, the British invasion put all their heroes out of work. Uh, and, you know, and, and, they, and they would put out the pasture, uh, you know, late 30s, early 40s. Early. You know, you're done. You're done for life, man. You know, if you had four hits when the Beatles came, you played those four hits for the next 40 years, 30 years, you know? It was a, just a terrible uh, injustice. Uh, you know, just, you know, nobody's fault, it just it just happened that way because the next generation, starting with the British invasion, the audience would grow right with them, which, you know, right. I talk about in great detail in a book because that's one of the great accomplishments of the Beatles that goes unheralded, is the fact that the Beatles invented and, and created the concept of evolution. There was no such thing as that. Album to album, you know. If you look back at the fifties, look look back at all of those fifties pioneers, all of them, and and they're all terrific, and they all have very strong identities, which was essential. And but if you listen to their work, they're all all of their work is very similar, you know. Uh, you listen to you know Drifters album, you know you know they're, they're all all obviously Drifters songs in, in, in the way that you picture that, you know. Or Chuck Berry, you know, Chuck Berry's great 28, you know, uh, sang three chords, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, this very, very, very uh, similar, which, which was the, that was the gig at the time, you know, uh, make sure your, your next hit is similar to your last one. So, so you, so you don't lose your audience. You know? It was all,
1: it was all uniform. Uh,
2: yeah, very, very consistent. If you go back and listen, you look, get any greatest hits records from the 50s and you'll find every song is extremely similar, you know? Not so with the Beatles, you know, who go from Twist and Shout to I Am the Walrus in four years, you know? I mean, <laughs> play, those, play, play those two songs back to back, you know? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, and, and so that was, you know, that was just something that, that they uh, they introduced. Uh, so, so every audience from the Beatles on would grow with the band. You know, so to this day, here we are, what is it, 50, whatever years later, who's the biggest, who's the biggest acts? Paul McCartney, the Beatles, and, and the Rolling Stones. You know, uh, right? Yeah. You know. Meanwhile, the, the drifters and coasters uh, and, uh, you know, whoever are playing cruise ships, if they're lucky, you right. know, and, and, you know, that, that Chitlin circuit, man, you know, it's just one of those things. Anyway, so I was on that, I was on that oldies, you know, oldies trip for a year and, and uh, I was the only one enjoying it, but I, uh, I really did enjoy it and uh, learned a lot, yeah. You know?
1: Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday. Out now through Sound Talent Media. And then you wind up. Bruce is now at a crossroads. His two first two records hadn't really done very well. He's in the studio recording the third record, which becomes Born to Run. It's not going very well, and you happen to be there. This is one of the seminal East Street stories. You tell it in the book. It's hilarious. He's working with a horn section that includes uh. big names. David Samborn, the Brecker brothers, and they turn to you and Bruce is like, "This is not working. What do you think?" And and you say,
2: and forget, <laughs> "You know, said they, like, this sucks, or you know, this really blows, or something. You know, or, you know, yeah. it's fucked up. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I it, it was it was it was sad for me. You know, you you you're fighting your whole life to you know get in that studio, man. It's so exciting, you know." And uh, it, that was the worst time to record in, in history, was the 70s, um, you know, and I talk about it in, in great detail in the book, how the engineers had temporarily taken over and padding everywhere. So there's a separation, you know, so they can control each instrument, you know, and uh, and it just, you know, it sounded fucking terrible, okay. I mean, just terrible, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's you know, uh, as you would imagine, you know, like sitting into fucking pillows, you know, right? Uh, so I'm on the floor, you know, I'm like, oh man, you know, here's my friend, you know, he's trying to make a record here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you know, doesn't anybody know that this sucks? You know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs> you know well, they, they,
0: sucks, they you know? must have known because they were having trouble getting it. Well,
2: oh man, were they having trouble, you know, and I'm like, I, I'm i was very very naive about it and very uh you know very very primitive in my in my understanding of it but i expected you walk into a studio and you hear like like you're walking into a club to see a band you know you want to hear like you know a band an exciting you know uh, uh you know an exciting bunch of noise you know <laughs> and uh, man was it not that you know and uh so I was kind of just getting upset that these guys are fucking up my friend's record. You know, I tell you. You know I'm like, man, you know, this cat's, you know, he he made he's made it all the way here to the finish line, you know, and now, uh, you know, you guys are fucking it up, um, you know, and I didn't understand that they were going to then, you know, they, they take all of the room sound and excitement out of the recording. And then they put it all back in, in the mix. You know, that was, what's the point Honest <laughs> to God, that was the concept of the seventies. Okay. Don't ask me, you know, and, 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 you know, and they, and they ended up, you know, they ended up doing a pretty good job. You're born to run, you know, it sounds good, you know, uh miraculously, you know, that's yeah, not as good as, not as good as the river, of course, you know, <laughs> which <laughs> we did the, we did the right way, you know, but, 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 um, but it's, you know, it's good. They, they did a remarkable job of, you know, piecing that stuff together one note at a time and you know it's like a jigsaw puzzle you know so anyway so yeah he says you know what do you think i said no this fucking sucks man you know <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know i did i you know and, and uh he says all right we'll go in there and fix it well you, you know go in and fucking fix it or something like that so i just went in and did what i did every day with the jukes you know sang them the parts and uh you know Believe me, they were they were happy to get out of there. <laughs> they, they, were, they, they would have took riffs from the fucking janitor, believe me, you know, you know just get us out of here, man. You know, <laughs> and then
0: and then from there, you you join the band um, and yeah. you, you're now you say in the book, I mean, you basically describe the bottom line as like a test run for you is is that's i always thought it was you that was you joined the band period and you were there not not no, a no test it period. wasn't <laughs> no it wasn't
2: a test run um um i joined the band when, there was only seven gigs booked that was it you know the career was like over and so it wasn't so much a test run uh, in, in i mean in in my mind um you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't say in my mind that I had fully committed to it. You know, if that's what you mean by a test run, uh yeah, you might have a point there. Um, because you know, I had the jukes going and um, you know, they were not thrilled that I was leaving the jukes. I had just gotten them signed. You know, Steve Popovich signed them and Stevie was like not thrilled that I was leaving them. He's like, You're half the band, you know, at least. <laughs> You know, and we were really me and Johnny were like co-singers. You know, we we wanted to be the white Sam and Dave, you know, and uh, so finally get him signed. With with Popovich thinking I'm in the group (laughs) and then surprise (laughs) I'm leaving, you know, so they were not too thrilled about that. And, um, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I really, you know, but so Bruce was just like, I'm putting the guitar down for these seven shows. I've tried everything else. Let me try fronting. Maybe that'll make a difference. You know, maybe that'll find a way to connect with an audience. You know, and it really did change change the game quite quite significantly. Because you know, front man, you know, who's not playing an instrument has far more contact and and freedom. And uh, a much more intimate relationship, really, with an audience. Uh, you know that guitar. You know is great. You know, and of course the Beatles. You know, are often an example of that. But it's a barrier. It's still. It's still a bit of a. It's a bit of a wall between you and the audience, in in a way. You know, um, in a sense. You know. Uh, unless you're Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> you <know? laughs> in which yeah. case you know the guitar becomes every woman in the audience, <laughs> 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 and you are making love to that woman. You know, uh, you know that's, that's being, <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, you know he's, he's he's a rare exception. I think and for the most part, you know, uh, you know the the performers. Really, if you think of performers. They're always the front men, right? It's, it's Mick Jagger, the most famous of them all. You know, it's uh, you know, it's Iggy Pop. You know, it's Peter Garrett. It's Johnny Rotten. You know, right? You know, uh, uh, Peter Wolf. You know, the great performers. You know, are always, you know, the the ones trying to be Jackie Wilson and James Brown and, you know, uh, you know whatever. Uh, you know, Sam Cooke. You know.
1: So after you join the band, now, of course, unfortunately, trouble sets in. There's a lawsuit that Bruce gets hit with. He can't record. And you tell a, a really, really in a compelling fashion in the book, there's a band meeting. People aren't getting paid at that point. And a vote is going to be taken to disband the E Street Band. And the first three guys vote, let's leave. And at that point, you in the book relate that you're like, hold on now. We can't do this. And Steve Popovich, who you just mentioned with Southside, plays a key role here. You actually basically saved the day. Saves the band. Yeah. Um, you know, who
2: knows what would have happened. But, but um, it was a scary moment for sure. And uh, things were not looking good. You know, they, they really weren't. You, you couldn't blame the guys for, for thinking about leaving. Cause it just was at that point a failed experiment. <laughs> you know, it was kind of, you know, it was uh, you yeah. know, but I was like, um, man, you know, I don't know. I don't I don't I don't I don't I don't I don't think um, I didn't lose faith in, in, in Bruce for, for you know for one single minute. And I never had, you know, I was kind of the first one to have faith in in him in the first place. Uh, And I saw something in him very, very early on that nobody else did.
1: Right. Well, as uh, we mentioned, you were the one who said to him,
2: you're going to be the front man. Yeah. But even before that, I mean, he just was different, you know, he was different. And I I like that difference where, where most people, you know, are afraid of those who are different or putting it down or, you know. Or you know disturbed by it, or, or confused by it. I I, I like the fact that he was different, and uh, you know, and, and 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 had and was so single-minded. You know, you know, whenever I had some doubts, you know, about my own single-mindedness having to do with rock and roll, you know, he was the only other guy I could rely on who who felt rock and roll was everything. You know, not just uh, you know this or just that, just a hobby. It was everything. You know, so, um, you know, we strengthen each other that way, I'm sure, right from the beginning. And, uh, you know, so I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't quite, uh, you know, my tendency at that point was to blame other things, you know, uh, I'm like, it's not my friend's fault, you know, that, you know, that things aren't selling, you know, he's not a fucking promo man or marketing guy, you know, he's a, he's, you know, he's an artist, I mean. You know, anyway, so uh, who knows what would have happened, but yeah, we, 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 uh, Steve Popovich saved the day, um, at that day. And then, and then Frankie Barcelona, uh, really made a you know, a huge difference, uh, uh, who was one of my lifelong, uh, my, another one of my lifelong friends who, uh, really had juice in those days. I mean, he was really the godfather of of rock. And, uh, and I, wish I'd, I wish I'd written a book about him that I tried, I, I, I so often wanted to do. And some, somebody will write it, or maybe I'll write it eventually, but somebody needs to write a book about Frank Barcelona, who was the most important guy, arguably, uh, in the in history of the rock industry, certainly. Oh, wow. uh, Single-handedly created the entire rock era, you know? Uh,
1: anyway, so... Because, uh, because of how he booked his tours.
2: Well, um, uh, well, very briefly, um, I, I, I go a little bit more detail in the book, but he, he did a few things that no one had ever done. Number one, uh, uh, he felt that the, the most important thing for a band is live performance. Uh, he felt that the records and radio would catch up to that. That was a completely new idea. Um, he structured the entire rock industry the way that Maranzano and then Luciano had 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 organized the mob. Uh, <laughs> everybody got their territory, you know. He's new. He put he put his own promoters in place, um, you know. And the old mustache peeps, as we call them, the old promoters who hated rock and roll, you know, and would steal left and right. Uh, he got rid of them and started putting his own promoters in place. And he said to them because at that point rock and roll literally was coming and going in, in the wild west and and who knows it's gonna last another week you know uh, he he put his own people in place and said listen you're gonna lose money on the first tour or two you're gonna break even on the next tour or two and then you're gonna make money for the rest of your life so everybody relaxed uh, and uh, and and Frank created the concept of longevity which didn't exist okay so um you know and a bunch of other things but 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 he had basically completely transformed the business into a business that was legitimate fair dependable consistent and had and had longevity by himself you know uh and so uh, i had when i was shopping around i'm trying to get i'm trying to Stop managing the Jukes. I'm managing the Jukes, you know. And, and then I joined up with the E Street Band. I'm like, I got to get rid of this, you know. I don't want to be a manager, you know. So I'm looking around for managers. I'm looking around for agents. And I had run into him, and and, uh, and he became the Jukes agent. And boom, man. You know, we had no radio airplay, and we're making a million dollars a year with the Jukes because of, because of Frank's muscle. And so I was like, man, he's the best. My friends got to be with the best, right? So uh, we ended up hooking that up, and, and then Frank uh, uh, loaned him a lot of money, uh, which we needed. You know, just completely broke. You know, and um, it was like a hundred grand at the time, which is like you know I don't know what you know a million now or you know half a million. Um, so he really saved saved the day in th- two or three ways. I mean, financially. But also just bringing his bringing his muscle to the Bruce Springsteen, you know, to an E Street band meant that the promoters now, who had kind of given up on him, you know, they had to they had it, they had to do what Frank said, and even the industry, even even the record company and everybody else had to give him a second look now, because Frank Frank just took over, you know, and nobody's gonna fuck with Frank, nobody, you know. So suddenly that juice, I think. You know, helped out with the record company. It helped out with the promoters, and gave us, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of wiggle room through the whole darkness period, which was still, you know, a bit chaotic, <laughs> you know, until we finally could break through with 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 the fifth album uh, with the river, you know. But uh, it was Steve Popovich and Frank Barcelona that uh,
1: came to the rescue, you know. Okay, so we're going to break it there. A bit of a cliffhanger, Steve telling the tale of 1977. As we all know, it turned out pretty well for them because they went on to record Darkness on the Edge of Town and the River. And we're going to address both of those records when we pick up with Steve in part two. And you're not going to want to miss that. And one last thing for tonight's episode, we also spoke to Steve about something very special he's doing with Backstreet's Magazine.
0: You signed some baseball cards of yourself as Miami Steve for for Backstreet's.com to sell. That, that's
2: pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh,
0: I, <laughs> you don't sound too thrilled. <laughs> we both bought
2: it. I yeah. <laughs> was coerced by the Jersey guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, Richie Russo had this, uh, had this idea. And, you know, I, I don't mind, really. Uh, it was a funny thing to do. And I thought, you know, is anybody really going to, you know, uh Respond to that, and he says, "Yeah, w- watch, you know." Massive so, response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been. Chris just tweeted about it today. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm signing. Uh, I don't know, we'll see how many, however many, however many sell, I'm going to sign. Okay, you know, but but not forever. You know, this is just the <laughs> finite. <you> know, <laughs> period. So
1: if any, if anyone wants the book, they can go to Backstreets.com and get the Miami Steve signed edition. The little Stephen signed edition is available through many bookstores. Uh, Check it out on the internet. There have been links through Steve's account and through some of the other accounts. Also, it's going to be available through all retailers, Amazon and your Barnes and Noble. And as we said, when we started the show, it's, it's a phenomenal read. We're not just saying that it it really is. Very
0: fun. Very fun. I mean, that's, I laughed out loud. And my wife would be like, what's so funny. And I had, I would have to explain to her, you know, well, I, I don't want to, Steve, you had a little addiction in the 70s. I don't want to talk about it, but uh, not not I'm not talking <laughs> we're about it. We're not going
1: Steve. there. Let's go
0: back to uh, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> but, but, but just to finish the thought, you know, I, I tell people, you know, if, if they have local bookstores, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and they're fewer and fewer, unfortunately. Uh Please support them, you know, and, and and you know, the bigger, the bigger chains, you know, are, are very necessary and very important for those who don't have the local bookstores, you know, and believe me, most of the country at this point don't have the local bookstores. So that's where the, you know, the Barnes and Nobles or Amazons or whoever it is really, really do a really do an important job. But if you do have a local bookstore, you know, you should support it. Uh, the Miamis uh, uh, on the day it comes out, uh, September 28th is the end of the Miami. So
1: the <laughs> Miami's in right now. <laughs> well, Chris said today when he tweeted, he he you have three thousand of them. They've already sold over two thousand. So they're running out. He was, no kidding, you know. Huh? Yeah. That's 3, what he 000? said in his tweet. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty good. Huh? Yeah.
2: Not bad. Not bad. Not
1: bad. Yeah, no, I, am you know, I, you know, whatever they, whatever they sell, I'm going to do. So. Oh, when they announced that I right away, I was like, Oh my God, I got to have one of those. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know.
2: I, you know, whatever.
0: (laughs) Uh, So again, that was Steve Van Zandt talking about unrequited infatuations available September 28th
1: what a treat oh my god it i can't believe our good fortune (laughs) maybe i shouldn't say that but wow that was great and part two i think is even better
0: oh i i agree that's when we get more to we we talk about the river we talk about born in the usa and and his solo stuff and and of course the reunion era as we like to call it
1: yeah and, and one of my favorite parts of that no spoilers but he addresses some stuff from letter to you that is is really quite touching and emotional, I think.
0: Yeah, it's very, very unique uh, perspective from coming from Steve, that's for sure.
1: So you're not going to want to miss part two. That concludes tonight's episode. None But The Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment and a part of Evergreen Podcast. You can find us on the web at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. On Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast.
0: So, for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flem McLean. Again, thanking Steve Van Zant for, uh, for joining us. Such a thrill. And uh, look forward to episode two of, of our interview with him. And we'll see you further on up the road.
1: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce.